Welcome, consumed listeners, to another season of the podcast that stokes candid conversations with California eaters, drinkers, thinkers, and makers. And speaking of stoking, I'm stoked you're here. How California is that? This season, I spoke exclusively with women in the wine industry, and it was a transformative experience on my end. These are smart, accomplished, and dare I say, ballsy people I interviewed from diverse experiences, cultures, and walks of life. Oh, and I chatted with them outdoors to be COVID safe. Don't be surprised if you hear a lawnmower, barking dog, or wind chime in the breeze. This is my backyard. Welcome. I want to say something here about one of my biggest supporters and cheerleaders, Rancho de Onaveros Wines in California's Santa Maria Valley. Vigneron James Onaveros is an example of a man who shares his platform with the women in his life, business, and industry, including me. He wrote a post on Instagram about the all-women crews that work at Rancho de Onaveros, and I wanted to share that with you. He wrote, There's a sense of detail and accuracy that I've always admired and appreciated out of our crew of ladies. The level of detail and care is unmistakably fantastic. In a business where every little detail adds up in the end to something superior, if done well, it truly matters. I'm always impressed and privileged with the results from this excellent team. Many thanks to Ranchos de Onaveros and James for his support of this podcast and the diversity of voices in the wine industry. For more information about Ranchos de Onaveros wines, visit ranchosdeonaveros.com. Many thanks as well to Slow Life Magazine, the publication that puts the people of San Luis Obispo County in the spotlight. For my next food column in the magazine, I'm writing about rogue pizza makers. That's folks who make and sell their artisan pizzas through non-traditional channels, like from their home kitchen. It turns out there's a real trend here on the Central Coast of secret pizza people who use social media to promote and sell their stuff. Check out the next issue of Slow Life Magazine for more information or visit slowlifemagazine.com. R.H. Drexel has been part of the wine industry since she came of age to drink, and she's worked with many of the greats, Opus One, Camus, critic Jeb Dunnick, and many others. She has also built her own webzine called Loam Baby about wine culture, and she has a newsletter called Holy Cow, with the C-O-W standing for Child of Wine. But for all her high-level involvement in the wine industry, socializing, traveling, drinking, etc., Drexel's a down-to-earth woman who is kind, creative, and open to growth. She gets vulnerable here about her mental health, her admiration for her friend Robert Parker, who is the world's most famous wine critic, and how California's Central Coast and the great outdoors have helped heal her. Enjoy this talk with R.H. Drexel. Well, R.H., I'm so, so pleased that you're here. There's Thank a, you. You're welcome. I think um, you mentioned that you've been in the wine industry since you were 21 years old, and that's, that's kind of unusual. Yeah, you know, it's, I grew up in the Napa Valley, and um, in an immigrant family, we came to the new country uh, in the late 1960s, and we eventually made our way up to Napa. And so uh, after college, I thought I was going to go on and become a, a college teacher and get my master's in English. And so I took a tour guide job at Behringer in the summer. I was oh, 21. that's how it started? And oh my goodness, uh, that was it. I never looked back. Um, I started as a tour guide and um, uh, fell in love with pouring wine for people and talking about wine and seeing them smile. You know, yeah. it's, it's a great way to enter the business because mostly when people are tours uh, tourists uh they're in good moods and they're and you, and so it was a, a great entry into the wine business so i'm 50 i just turned 56 last week so happy uh, birthday thank you so i've been in it for a long time um well so you it's so true that people are happy because they're on vacation and wine is not a sad thing um it's a celebratory thing it's also the most beautiful places on earth are where wine is is made. Mm-hmm. Um, so Napa Valley certainly being one of the most beautiful. Um, you said that you are um, part of a family of immigrants. Where did you, your family immigrate from? So we were born, I was born in the Azores Islands, about 800 oh, miles yeah. off the coast of Portugal. Yeah. Uh, and might as well be another country out there. There are nine islands and we were from the third uh, smallest in the archipelago, Terceira. Huh. And um, Yes, uh, simple, simple people, uh, most, mostly fishermen and 
dairymen on the islands. And uh, when my parents immigrated here, it was just uh, because it was an opportunity um, to have their kids grow up with, with more than they had. Maybe some people don't. My father plays guitar and is very involved in the Portuguese community. My mom's a poet, a Portuguese poet. Oh, and wow. so I think because of that, I've always been really into the immigrant community here in California. And yeah. so perhaps more so than some other Azorian immigrants, I go out of my way to try to connect with with people that I can hopefully learn from because I came here as a really little girl. So mm. anytime I can learn about the Azores, you know, from someone that's immigrated there, uh, from there, I'd love to. Yeah. Yeah. Have you been there before? I haven't, if you can believe that. <laughs> um, I'm really hoping to go this year or the hope was to go this year. And I, I don't know now if it'll, it'll be safe um, to travel. Uh, but if not, then ne definitely next year, my wife and I really want to go to the Azores. And that'll yeah. be my first time since being born there. So it'll be oh. quite a thrill. Cathartic, hopefully. Uh, yes, yeah. I think so. Yeah. What does your wife do? Well, my wife was, like many uh, people, laid off during uh, oh, COVID. But yeah. she was working at the Atascadero Zoo. No, yeah. we love the Atascadero Zoo. Isn't it a sweet little zoo? Six acres of, totally. you know. Yeah, and, it, and it's so wonderful because they really are, you know, they're accredited and they really care about conservation and yep. education and um, knowing a little bit about how the animals are cared for and taken you know, looked after there. I, I feel really good about our community zoo. I think it's great. It is great. And uh, flamingos are my favorite exhibit oh, aren't they there. Go, yeah, aren't they great? They're so great. <laughs> I love that. Well, now I have now I have an in with the, the animals, which I'm, I appreciate. <laughs> yeah, they just recently uh, op you know, opened back up. And so um, we're hoping she can return to work soon. She needs to get her, her vaccine first. And yeah, yeah all Ugh, that stuff. a year off. Yeah, yeah, it's time. Well, let me ask you about, um, you know, with the wine industry, you've had a pretty storied career with lots of different um, angles to it in the wine industry. When you were at Behringer, um, you know, how did that begin? How did it shoot off from Behringer into some of these, uh, the writing gigs that you've got going? Yeah, so the industry was very small when I started in the Napa Valley. There are literally, didn't feel like a lot of wineries on Highway 29. Mm. And so at the time, there was a winery that had just been built. Uh, in fact, when I was, uh, I was at Behringer, uh, when I found out about a tour guide position at Opus One. Mm. And... Um, at the time, it was a partnership between Robert Mondavi and the Baroness Philippine uh, Rothschild, rest their souls. Mm -hmm. And so because the valley was so small and I took that job, I, right away I got thrust into um, the real thick of Napa Valley uh, because at the time everyone wanted to see Opus One and yeah. they had a lot of parties there and a lot of high-profile press from the wine industry and just in general. Mm -hmm. And so um, I cut my teeth there, and from there I was uh, headhunted by uh, another winery called Camus Vineyards. And at the time, um, after leaving Opus One, Camus became very famous for a wine they were making called the Special Selection Cabernet, which they're still making. But then back then it was very trendy. Yeah. So I just happened to be uh, then to join them, I guess, at the right time, and I uh, became their publicist, and um, became and started to travel right away to major media markets. Again, quite young still. Did you uh, have any background in PR? No, I didn't. Um, I had a mentor at Opus One uh, who taught me a little bit about PR. And I studied English literature in college. And I think that served me well with regard to trying to generate content and write press releases. And so when this publicist at Opus One left for another gig, they were for a little while without a publicist. And so I kind of stepped into her role as an intermediary mm -hmm. and did PR there for about six months mm -hmm. and just kind of learned on the fly. And then it came as I was hired as their director of communications. And so it became my full-time position. And that's when I really met a lot of wonderful writers. Um, and they inspired me to want to write about wine. I still do public relations and marketing, mm -hmm. but um, now I do wine writing as a hobby. I just love it. How many clients do you have for PR right now? It changes all the time. Um, during COVID, the list dropped off considerably. Um, and so um, I'd say right now, at any given time, I have between 50 and 20 rotating, wow. kind of rotating carousel of clients. And yeah. some, of, some I've been with for a very long time, and then others come and go for projects. It's, it's a really wonderful job. I'm so grateful for it. I mean, self-employed, but I, I just love the biz. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Mostly small guys that... Uh, everything. Really? It's really important for me to uh, not only represent 
um, the vigneron kind of producer. Um, and then I, I also represent um, very high-end Napa Valley producers, bootstrappers that barely have anything in the bank, mm. and then chain brands. Um, because I am an immigrant and because I was raised with... My dad had a jug of um, Carlo Rossi under the dining room table, um, <laughs> you know, under his chair that he'd pour out into glasses and he very modest tastes. And so it's important to me to represent brands that are... Um, also inexpensive and highly accessible mm -hmm. um, that someone can, you know, a $5 bottle of wine or $8 bottle of wine, if that's all they can afford, yeah. I'm happy to represent those brands as well. Those can be very high quality too now with, you know, modern technology and Absolutely. modern sensibilities. They can be mm -hmm. really decent wines. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you were at Camus and Opus One. These are big names. Mm -hmm. I mean, when when was that? What decade was that? So, so uh, I was I would say early to mid nineties is when I yeah. was really um, in in the thick of things in the Napa Valley. Those were very heady days. Yeah. Uh, when I made my way to Camus, um, you know, there weren't. They were sort of one of the first cult cabs, mm -hmm. and so uh, they were kind of like rock stars. And yeah. the lifestyle was extremely heady. Um, and and perhaps too heady for for me. Um, uh, private jet rides, five star hotels, Michelin star restaurants, meeting a lot of celebrities, and all that stuff. It sounds exciting, but um, I I got overwhelmed by it eventually. And um, it's uh, one of the reasons why I ended up on the Central Coast was because I needed to unroll that spool a little bit and simplify mm -hmm. the wine business. Um, and I, I I very I roast very quickly in the Napa Valley to a successful place. Mm -hmm. um, but at the time, uh, it was also a, a lonely time for me, uh, ironically, I guess. No, I, that makes perfect sense to me. I think it can be very lonely when things are very heady. Mm -hmm. um, not a lot of like down-to-earth connection to people. Some of the loneliest times I've had uh, were on like press trips and things where... You know, my stomach is roiling because we've been eating and drinking all day long. <laughs> I mean, that I, I just don't have the stomach for that anymore. Um, exactly. But, you know, sitting in a hotel room at night and feeling kind of this false sense of closeness with other journalists on the trip. And I, it's some wonderful relationships have come out of that. But, um, yeah, yeah. Not that this is about me, but I just will add one of the loneliest times I ever had was um, in Napa. I was part of the symposium for uh, professional wine writers. Oh, yes, surely. Such a wonderful mm -hmm. time, such a eye, an eye-opening time. But I felt like I didn't belong, like I wasn't um, legit enough or, um, you know lauded and, and applauded enough to even share the table with some of these mm -hmm. folks. You know, mm -hmm. I'm sitting next to the Washington Post wine columnist and, um, you know, folks from Food and Wine. And it just, it did feel lonely. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe that's different from your experience, but it's just, you get a lot of really accomplished people in a room and then you add wine. Um, I don't know. We were talking about our egoic selves earlier and I felt like that was hard for my egoic self. Yes, and, and you know, very similar experiences. At the time, um, the the writers that I was speaking with, um, I was kind of, my, my, my career was just blossoming, so I deferred to them very much, And whereas now some of them are very close friends or even mentors of mine. At the time, I had just these appointments with them and maybe desk side tastings. Mm -hmm. uh, where the pressure came was the socializing with other people in the industry, where... You know, it's late nights after dinner at restaurants and a lot of drinking and mm -hmm. uh, I think a lot of posturing. What did you bring to the table? What wine did you bring? How much is it worth? Is it high scoring? Was it an American wine? If so, maybe you're not as sophisticated as someone who bought a Burgundy to the table. Right. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I'm, as a young person, then relatively young, in my you know, 20s and 30s, uh, I, I don't think I had enough of a sense of self. So I, I felt insecure in those circumstances. Yeah. And um, and uh, so while it's it's interesting, I look back at that time as a really successful time, and I made good money, and I made it, uh, and I networked a lot, and I advanced my career. Um, but I'm so much more contented now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I remember my, I guess maybe my, uh, in the, it was in the, at the height of the Camus years, 
just um, going home at night and having a glass of Camus with a couple of Vicodin just to try to like not mm. feel, mm. Um, to not feel any, to not feel so alone and so, yeah. you know, and I, I think part of that is being maybe a little self-absorbed at that age too and mm. maybe a little narcissistic. I just, I don't know what it was, but I, it was a, 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 a strange um but also like i said very successful time but a strange yeah. time as well yeah and it sounds transformative too you ended yeah. up here mm-hmm. um why did you choose here specifically though you know i, I was uh headhunted for a job while i was at camus um there was a job that was uh, offered at the santa barbara county vintners association as the mm-hmm. executive director and so that opportunity came up and i think i wanted uh, just to leave um, Napa Valley altogether and start over. So there was something very attractive about the anonymity of being in a new place. And also, I'd, uh, I love Cabernet Sauvignon. I love Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon still. But I had had a few wines from the Central Coast that were so amazing. I remember having an Au Bon Clément Chardonnay mm-hmm. uh, that someone brought to the Rutherford Grill, a restaurant in Napa that's still open, mm-hmm. and having that and just being completely floored by how beautiful it yeah. was. And so when I started to put the pieces together that these wines um, were from grown at Bienecito Vineyard and hearing about that and doing some research, I thought, well, that'll be a great place for me to unwind a little bit, get close to agriculture again. And uh, yes, I did, uh, I did also learn that in the Santa Maria Valley, especially there are a lot of Portuguese immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was exciting to me, too, to have a, an immigrant community to connect with. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's, that's kind of how the transition happened. And, uh, and it turned out to be a healthier uh, lifestyle for me too. Yeah. Um, I'm probably jumping ahead here, but it sounds perhaps, tell me if I'm wrong, but is there a theme of kind of wanting anonymity? There is. I think so. And, um, I'm, uh, yes, there absolutely is. It has something to do with feeling safe and Mm -hmm. to not, not feeling very exposed. I'm just, I'm a very, very late bloomer. And so I'm Mm -hmm. in my fifties, fifties, I'm just now, um, I would say last, maybe in the last 10 years, I've just started to really um, face a lot of childhood-based trauma that I think until that point I was probably self-medicating away with yeah. alcohol here sometimes, you know, in my earlier years, opiates back then, mm-hmm. later on alcohol, sometimes too much pot, whatever we, sure. and then uh, all of a sudden I thought, no, it's time to just have a, to really take a good look at my true self and yeah. what makes me do the things that I do and, and um and so, I'm sorry, I kind of lost my, my thread there. Oh, but. no, it's okay. Anonymity. Yeah. As, and, oh, so as, anonymity. And as I bring up anonymity, I'm realizing yeah. we're on microphones doing a, <laughs> a public podcast. Well, and that's the thing is now I'm finally um, comfortable talking about some of these. Yeah. Well, I don't think I have anything particularly that interesting to say. or, um, But if I'm asked to, to speak about things that I've spoken about publicly before, like my PTSD or mm-hmm. whatever else... Um, for a long time, it was just safer to do the so anonymously. But uh, as I've gotten older, I'm just more comfortable in my yeah. skin. And um, in wanting to explore the self, I um, I, I want to do it in some sort of genuine and honest way. And I got tired of bullshitting my way through some of the trying to explain away certain behaviors. Like yeah. if someone drops a plate at a restaurant and I jump out of my skin freak and out, yeah. freak out, then I, <laughs> uh, I just felt like at some point it might be helpful for the people that I'm with to know this about me and it it certainly doesn't define me by by any means but um, I think some of the anonymity was self-protective and then yeah Mm -hmm. yeah Um, PTSD what helps you with that can I ask I we I I have I have a little little storylines here and there little veins of thinking about PTSD sure yeah Yeah, so I've been um, diagnosed with by um different therapists with different things um that they seem to agree that i have clinical depression and complex ptsd was first it was ptsd and it may be complex ptsd um what all of this means to me uh Mm -hmm. is that i um it's information i so uh, the way that i have come to um in fact, I oftentimes go into complete remission with my PTSD and with my clinical depression. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a combination of uh, meditation, yeah. um, judicious use of cannabis, mm-hmm. um, plenty of exercise, yeah. uh, long walks, a, a lot of communion with nature. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't 
it's not that I don't find solace in people. I have, I'm very fortunate to have some extremely close and dear friends whom I trust uh, greatly. And of course, my wife mm-hmm. is my best friend. And so I'm very, very fortunate that way. But I find a tremendous amount of peace and safety in nature. Mm-hmm. And um, I've never been denied shade by a tree. I've never had, mm-hmm. I've never been judged by a bird. Um, <laughs> so that's kind of my safe place. Yeah. And that's helped me to uh, gain perspective on PTSD a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, if I can feel safe in the world and know that exists, I can bring those experiences back into my everyday life and, and be able to calm myself to because I sometimes um, with PTSD, you can, especially with outside stressors um, like a pandemic or uh, political unrest, right. there, those can be triggers where you can go down a spiral you didn't even see coming and all of a sudden you don't even want to leave your bed right. and you, you don't want to go anywhere and you're afraid of everything, mm. even your own spouse. And that's where it gets really kind of uh, very sad and, yeah. and debilitating. So... Um, I've learned over time as, as I start to see these red flags, I pull away from my wife. I'm not trusting in her or I'm starting to pull away too much. Mm-hmm. I, um, I take a deep breath. I make myself go outside. I go to a peaceful place. Um, maybe before bed, I'll smoke a little flower. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the, in the morning, I you know, meditate. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and those things help me a lot. Thank you so much for um, being open about that. It, not just with me, but for anybody who's listening, I think this is a subject we don't talk about nearly enough. I hear you on um, the pushing things away that maybe you hadn't seen before. Even as recently as this morning, it occurred to me um, just some kind of like primitive, primal, lower brain ways I was behaving. Um you know, the fight, flight, freeze, or there's a fourth one. I can't remember what it is. Flight or fight. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Not, it's not good. Whatever that fourth F is, it's not good. Yeah. So, um, but you know, ways that we as people took care of ourselves um, before our upper brains, higher brains could start to kind of um, drive the truck. And uh, just, I can't, I couldn't believe it this morning when I realized some of the things I had said. Um, even just this past week to my children, to a friend of mine, where I realized, oh my gosh, I'm so trapped. Um, even as I know I'm growing and changing, there's still just these, it blows my mind sometimes how truly trapped I have been. There's mm-hmm. a wonderful writer and speaker named Tara Brock. Yes, uh, yes. Do you know her? Yes. I just adore Tara Brock. Mm-hmm. Um, I love this story that she tells about... Um, you know, there's a young man uh, walking through a forest and he sees a little dog, really cute little dog under a tree. And he goes to approach it and he goes to pet it and the dog snarls at him. And he goes, what the hell? What's wrong with you? You know, I didn't do anything to you. And then he sees behind the dog's leg is caught in a trap. And so it's reacting. It's freaking out because it's just, you know, its lower brain is in control. And I love that story because... Um, I think it gives me perspective not just on other people who might react um, or overreact, but also me. I just, sometimes I feel like my leg is caught in a trap and I'm just reacting. Anyway, we're not talking about wine at all, but it is it is germane to, it is. to the discussion. Yeah, and you know, it's, um, it's interesting. I, um, a few years ago, I did a, an interview with... Uh, wine critic Robert Parker who's one of my personal mentors and has been for many years and uh, it was uh, I've done a couple of interviews with him and they've both addressed mental health but the first one was after um, he was the only person that I spoke to about this but I did so publicly in an interview at the time and it was about having had a, a, a mental breakdown yeah and I was institutionalized for nearly a month and it was a very mm. scary time mm. And I lost all touch with consensus reality there for a while. Mm. And um, something in me broke wide open. And since that time, I've had the privilege, actually, uh, of piecing myself back together. Mm. And I say that as um, because even though it was the most difficult thing I've ever gone through, I'm grateful now that I went through it because I've emerged a lot stronger and a lot lighter. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Um, 
you know, our species is so strapped with this egoic mind. Yeah. Um, and I think one thing that I'm lucky for and having had that happen to me um, is that uh, I'm, so, I w- I'm so much more aware of what the egoic mind, what havoc it can wreak yeah. on us as creatures if that's all we identify ourselves with is this dialogue in our brains that right. tells us what we are and what we're worth or not worth for that matter mm-hmm. and uh, we should be more important and we should do this and we should do that and uh, before I think I identified so strongly with those that constant loop of mm-hmm. thoughts and now I kind of sort of see it as this as something um, sort of tedious you know the ego is not your amigos it's kind of this tedious voice (laughs) yeah i I, I didn't think of that it was an artist on venice beach who was selling a painting i bought that i bought actually and and the painting is is, are the words that your ego is not your amigo um and i don't think the mind is that kind either Mm -hmm. and um and so i just uh I, i totally understand and relate to what you're saying about uh feeling um trapped like that dog you know and mm-hmm. and i think so sometimes by going out in nature or, or connecting with something larger than ourselves we can kind of gain perspective yeah. and perhaps even take ourselves a little less seriously mm-hmm. and in the process forgive ourselves a little bit more quickly yeah you know yeah. i'm hoping you've already forgiven yourselves for, for yourself for having maybe mm-hmm. lost your patience with your kids or something totally. but that's yeah you have to do that you have to forgive the self in order to to yeah. be light around people, you know. Well, um, and and I I come back to all the time. There's there's a book I like to read that has a statement in it that says, um, you know, you're be wary of um, worry, excessive worry, and um, oh, now I'm blanking on it. I should know. Well, b- morbid reflection. Yeah. Yeah. And remorse because it's not useful. Mm-mm. Ultimately, it's really not useful. And and lately, I have been positioning my life every morning. Um, toward usefulness. How can I be useful today? Whether that means quite literally smiling at my child, something as simple as that can mm-hmm. be very useful. Beautiful, yeah. Or doing the dishes or going grocery shopping mm-hmm. or like, you know, I'm so, I'm, I feel privileged that you're sharing this with me because it's such a big, it's a big thing and you're very brave. Um, I, I feel like I'm in service to humanity, I don't mean to sound too grand, but when we talk like this mm-hmm. and it's open to other people, something moves forward. Mm. Um, and so I'm being useful right now, and so are you. And so, um, yeah, that's been kind of the North Star lately. Um, but if I keep that North Star, I can't, you know, morbid reflection, I think, is just the best way to encapsulate that. Yes. You know, that sin, basically. Mm-hmm. And- um and it is, you know, you, you mentioned, you reference like, you know, uh, if that one good thing that you do is washing the dishes, you know, or, or that one sort of useful thing, rather, you, you mm-hmm. said, that's important distinction, uh, useful thing that you do is wash the dishes. Um, that's also an opportunity to meditate, you know, medita- yeah. to sort of be present. And 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 that's really where it's at. That's, that's really, that's where you can actually stop all that sort of uh, morbid, I'm reflection so, yeah re- reflection <laughs> is it c- because there's no room for it if you're absolutely nope. enjoying that you know washing of the dish and washing that coffee mug that you bought maybe at point reyes on a yes, vacation exactly. with your husband and it kind of and just being grateful for the little things that you have and wiping them down and putting them back in their yep. place is is a lovely practice and i think that is being useful not only to yourself but to all those plates and to the yes. cupboards and <laughs> to the people who will use them and, yeah, yeah all of that it's it's you know we we really do pay way too much attention to ourselves i believe yeah you know there are some people who don't there are some people who move through life and there is not a lot of ego involved there is not like the the video camera on the mind yeah they just walk through life and they do things and they respond appropriately and i mean you know everybody has their problems but mm-hmm. I just I um I feel you on on the egoic thing. Um and I connect deeply with people who struggle with that for sure. And I th- I connect I think it's becoming more common ever since the age of the internet and social media and now and now unfortunately children and young people and young people coming up in the wine business I think about them all the time. You know, the the pressure to post on Instagram and what did you drink and who are you hanging out with and what psalms do you know and what yeah. restaurants are you eating at and I was going through that in my 30s, but I, 
uh, 20s, but I didn't, God, it, the pressure, if I had to post that and have everybody see it, that would have been even harder than it was already. So I yeah. have a lot of sympathy for people who are, you know, there's so much pleasure to be had in the wine business, but if you're, if it is mostly about wanting to finesse the perception of your life in such a way that you'll be liked more, mm. then you're missing a lot from yeah. it. And so, uh, yeah, as you can see, I'm not a big fan of social media. I've you know mm. canceled all my accounts, but but LinkedIn, mm. and uh, I feel so much better for yeah. it. Yeah. Let's take a quick detour here to talk about another consumed sponsor. Slow Food Co-op's mission is to empower health and well-being in the community by providing quality groceries, local produce, and exceptional customer service. Slow Food Co-op sources from local producers, ensuring they offer their shoppers great food and household staples. Slow Food Co-op is your friendly neighborhood grocer, maintaining non-GMO standards and a variety of organic selections. You can find Slow's only community-owned grocery store on their website at slowfood.coop and visit the Slow Food Co-op in-store at 2494 Victoria Avenue in San Luis Obispo, California. How did you meet Robert Parker? Was he one of the writers you met through Camus? Yes. And, um, you know, I'll have a, you know, I've known him for so long now, but for, for the first few years, it was extremely deferential. Um, Mm. on my part, he's, he's a very serious taster. And so you set up the wines and someone comes and tastes and you don't really say much. And then you dump out the dump buckets and wash the glasses and that's about it. And, uh, as I got to know him, and um, even more so as I moved to Santa Barbara later, and he would start coming to review Santa Barbara County wines, and I'd already known him for a while, he started to invite me to taste with him. Mm-hmm. And um, we started to become friends that way, and then his wife Pat would come out, and uh, s- slowly but surely I um, I began to lean on him um, for advice, career advice and life advice. In many ways, he's like a father to me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it, it just blossomed to where I just a couple of days ago I was asking him for um advice and um I I check we check in with each other all the time so um I think one uh, probably the greatest thing I've I learned from him is um to really respect the consumer and appreciate the consumer um because he he really, you know, so many modern day wine writers, I believe there is a certain set that write for other writers or they write, uh, they have an agenda of some sort or they want to be cool and then write about certain things or define their sophisticated palate by only liking certain types of things. And Robert loved the consumer and uh, really respected the consumer. And he grew up a blue collar kid, working class family. Um, so uh, I think... Um, that's one thing I've really, that's really served me well, I should say. In any job that I've taken, if I put the consumer first, even when advising clients, that seems to have served me well, that lesson. That's so interesting. I, he, he is a polarizing figure in many ways. Just, to, you know, his approach is very specific. Um, he's also, you know, even those who... <laughs> claim not to care for his style of, you know, putting a score with things. Mm-hmm. Still, when he comes through and does a tasting, everybody's wine is there. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's they mm-hmm. people respect him. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I went to a, one of those tastings where he comes through, he tastes everything and then he leaves and all the wine is right there. And, you mm-hmm. know, all yeah. the all the folks show up to taste. Those are fun. It is super fun. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it was it was as though uh, you know a god had passed through, um, and it's yeah he's a very um, obviously very well known man. Um, but yes, he does um, he does care about the consumer. I had never thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right. And the mm-hmm. score is in service to the consumer. It is. You know, I mean, he's he just has ret- gone into retirement now. But, you know, there's a great old um, episode of 60 Minutes uh, where, you know, I believe he's the only wine critic that's ever been on 60 Minutes. And mm. um, 
he would you know, and he talks quite I, mean, I think watching that you see how much he was sort of the Ralph Nader of wine he really yeah. just wanted the consumer to have access to the wines that people were chatting about and to not feel intimidated and the 100 100 point scale seemed like a good way to go about it yeah. but if you see him interact with people uh, he was very polite and yeah. not judgmental at all of anything that they drank, whether it was fashionable or not or whatever. I mean, he, he was just happy to see people enjoy themselves. Yeah. And I, I think that's a, a lovely characteristic. Absolutely. And I, I've only ever heard that, that mm-hmm. he is mm-hmm. um, highly democratic mm-hmm. um, and a kind man. Very much so, yeah. Yeah. And he lives, where does he live? Maryland, yeah. Which is also something I love, that yeah. he isn't in New York, and he's not in Chicago, and he's not in L.A. or San Francisco or Napa. He could so easily have been in any of those places, but he's home. Yeah. I think that was really nice and something that I connected with him so much early on um, was just hearing him talk, even very early on in our friendship, about so fondly about his parents and uh his wife and his daughter Maya and their dogs and pets and his friends are not wine business people. You know, his, some, I have friends in the wine business, but a lot of my friends are just, they're not in the wine business. And yeah. I think that can keep you a little bit more balanced. It's true of any industry. If you're in the music industry and you're only with ever with musicians or you can become very myopic. And yeah. similarly, if you've ever gone, there are these wine countries, sometimes dinner parties where you show up and, all the winemakers, men and women, will just talk about wine and maceration and cold soaking. All the spouses are quiet and sort of like no one's really engaging with them. And my wife has been asked before at wine uh, dinner parties, what do you do? And if she'll say, well, film editing or I work at the zoo. Um, of course, friends of ours will want to engage right away. But if yeah. she's just meeting people for the first time in the wine business, if she's not in wine, they don't really talk to her for the rest of the night. Yeah. And I find that to be really rude. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, and that's another thing I heard from Robert when I was at dinner parties with him, that people talk about everything but the wine. I mean, maybe right. talk a little bit about, oh, it's nice or let's raise a glass, but there's so much else to life. Yes. And they're polite and fair to everyone at the table and everyone has a chance to talk. And For sure. For yeah. sure. I'm listening right now to the podcast, um, The Test Kitchen, which is on Reply All. It's all about how Bon Appetit kind of imploded over the summer with... Um, yes. With their executive, sorry, editor-in-chief, and they talk a lot about the cool kids Mm -hmm. in this podcast and how um, you had to be a cool kid to hang with the editor, and he was the one who made, ultimately, assignments and stories, and and then it gets into, you know, inclusivity versus exclusivity, and there were a lot of people who were pushed out, and, um, and when he was pretty much forced to resign in the summer, um... It had a long, long trail before it. It wasn't just the one incident that mm-hmm. forced him out. It was a whole accumulation of events. And that cool kids thing, I struggle with that so, so much. Um, so? Oh. Well, just ex- when you describe the dinner party scenario. Oh, that, that yes, of course. That, yeah. like, brings up so many feelings for me. And if your cool wife who works at the zoo and is a film editor, Mm -hmm. isn't getting engaged in conversation. Imagine what it's like for my husband, who's a software programmer. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Nobody wants to talk about that. Um, Or, you know, the home improvement projects that he's doing or what he's reading lately. There are times when, talk about lonely. I mean, I love wine. Obviously, this whole season is is people in the wine industry. Um, But that, that cool kid club thing really turns me off mm-hmm. um and and it's also just really boring I'm sorry can I say it's just really boring when that's all you want to talk about yeah and it's 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 tedious and it just seems to fly in the face of so much of what you know people say about wine and even some of the cool kids on their Instagram accounts about how it brings people together and <laughs> all this stuff and then you know when the rubber really meets the road do they allow it to really bring people together you know I've been in situations before where I've been uh, at events where there's, or even restaurants, I'll give you an example of a restaurant where uh, a sommelier, I, um, I was kind of in the background and just hanging out with some friends and the sommelier would come and sort of make fun of occasionally of people who maybe ordered a Rombauer Chardonnay <laughs> or somebody ordered or asked if there was Josh Sellers on the yeah. list or something. And, and they thought that was very funny and sort of their sort of portrayed them like peasants. Mm. And I, I just thought, you know, that that's just so uh, so silly and tedious. 
um, because you, you can surely like uh, a wine that's maybe a little bit more nuanced than Josh Sellers and you can know more. Uh, but why would you think you're more sophisticated because they're putting a different beverage in their body? If you stop to think about right. it and really pull back, it's absolutely ludicrous, the elitism and snobbery in wine. Mm-hmm. And um, that spills into so many you know, dinner parties and even people gather and, oh, what'd you bring? Oh, this is cool, this orange wine or this, that, or this, that. And someone else, maybe a younger person or, or someone who's maybe a little not sure, brings a Miomi and all of a sudden it's like, oh, God, they brought that. And they don't even bother opening it because it's it doesn't have any place next to these burgundies and Miomi's mm-hmm. just for chumps. And so they put it in the kitchen and make a, make a joke about it, won't even share it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, come on, folks. This yeah. is That's just very silly, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think it's it's very silly, at least for me, to me. So um, anyway, yeah, the, the, cool, the cool kids phenomena uh, also bothers me a lot, mm-hmm. uh, especially surrounding wine and food and music and things that should bring anyone joy yeah. unequivocally and without question. If you're not hurting anyone, well, who cares what you're drinking, really? Right. I mean, I... This is I, I collect wine and I, I take wine seriously and, and, and do my wife and I drink Miomi at home? No, it's a little sweet for my palate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm an old broad and I like something light and mm-hmm. uh, something that goes with food and not very high in alcohol because alcohol affects me more than I'm in my 50s. So these are personal choices. Right. But goodness gracious me, does that mean my palate is better than someone who drinks but light for dinner? Mm-hmm. I, actually, I, I, I'm not being coy here. I sincerely believe that does not mean that. It, yeah. That doesn't mean that at all. I don't. Yeah. I don't even know. I mean, I could go on and on about what taste even means, mm. philosophically, and what yeah. that you know. So we all have our own tastes, and I, what, one thing I will agree is with is that I like to see people have pleasure and, mm. and to have fun. Yeah. And so that's why I'm in the wine business, and that's what I love about it. But yeah. all those other little categories and things are very tedious to me. Yeah, well said. Well, so you have, um, in addition to your clients and PR that you do, you have a magazine called Lone Baby. Yeah. That is just, uh, it's like, um, maybe I don't, I obviously don't know everything, but I feel like it doesn't get enough attention. <laughs> it's really lovely. Um, it is in print as well as digital, right? Yeah, the, the last, the woman's issue was... Um, it's solely digital. I, I couldn't afford to get it printed. I, so I don't accept advertising. Mm-hmm. I, pre- I print them all on my own dime. It's $10,000 an issue. Yeah, right. It's expensive. It's exp- um, for me to print, and then yeah. I give most of them away. Um, yeah. I do sell them um, on the website, but I, um, I also print them up and send them out to give attention to the people that are featured in it. So I spread them around. I send them to chefs and to artists and to... Uh, to regular people that, and then I and to other wine writers and um, give them away to kids, and uh, it's just a little, it's a little zine. And I think the reason that it's uh, relatively unknown and probably will always be is that there's no regular publishing schedule. Yeah. It's done on the fly, mm. and um, it's a hobby. So I love that. I love <laughs> so, that yeah. you're like. Mine. I'm gonna do it when I want to do it. I mean, for for a brief time, uh, there was a, a wine critic uh, that tried to purchase it, um, Anto- Antonio Galoni. It, yeah. The purchase did not go well. Um, we had a a falling out over it, oh, shoot. Um, and so I uh, was never paid for. I retained, uh, took back ownership of it, mm-hmm. and no one will ever get my baby again. So <laughs> uh, now I publish the Holy Cow newsletter. So Holy Cow C O W stands for Child of Wine. Mm. And uh, I publish that for f- for free, and then occasionally I'll put together a issue of Lone Baby and um, publish it, and it's free online. And then if someone wants to buy a copy, gosh, I think it's five bucks a copy, or I don't know what it is, <laughs> which is <laughs> you know? great, which is reasonable. Yeah, and yeah. you know, and then like I, you know, I, uh, but like I said, it was never. I have goals for writing uh, fiction. I'm writing a, a novel. I'm almost finished with, and oh my word. And I'm so, very impressed. That is hard. That that's hard. But uh, but in terms of my wine writing, it's just a very very fun thing that I I'll never make money on, nor would that ever be the intention. And even my fiction writing, I doubt I'll make money on. But it sure is a lot of fun. I know that's something that people don't understand, um, especially <laughs> young writers trying to get in. Is yeah, it's it's not necessarily something you do for money. It's something you do because you have to. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Um, in yeah. fact, the, the first draft of my novel, I ended up burning because it sucked so bad when I read it back. <laughs> and I realized that I, was, I had been writing it for an audience. I'd been writing it to sell it. And it was just cliche upon cliche. Uh -huh. And then it wasn't. So I started all over again. And now it's actually free therapy, which yeah. is much more rewarding. Yeah. But it's probably also not very marketable. And that's okay. Well, and if it goes well, it goes well. And if it doesn't connect, fine. But it is free therapy. Yeah, and there's no expectation. The I think that's the, the beauty of it is I don't want to ever foist any sort of expectation of success upon it. Because yeah. wouldn't be fair to the characters who I'm, I'm learning from. And it surely would not be f fair to me, you know. Yeah. And Lamott said that, um, have you read Bird by Bird, her I book? Sure have. Oh, gosh, I love that book. She's amazing. She is. I actually got her to sign it. No way. At a, at a reading. And um, awesome. they were very, her handlers were really specific about, you can't take a photo of her. Mm. Um, but my friend did of, of me getting her to sign it. And it means the world to me. Oh, um, lovely. lovely. I know. But... She said, what is it she said in there? Oh, her students so desperately want to get published. Get mm. published, get published, get published. And she tries to say, the point is not getting published. The point is the writing itself. Mm -hmm. That's where the gift is, mm -hmm. not in the publishing of the work. Mm -hmm. Surely there's a gift in connecting with your readers. Mm -hmm. But really, it's about doing the work to get something finalized. Mm -hmm. That's where the gift is. Oh, yeah, that's, that's the fun part. Right. Right. And then, you know, it's interesting because you can connect with people through the writing process without ever publishing, too, I believe, because and this is where I start to sound like an old hippie, which is what I am. But um, I think you start to expand your consciousness so that you're you are more aware of others and the eternal internal lives of others. Mm -hmm. And and so you you become more approachable and more open. Yeah. So. You're kind of publishing your heart out on the ether, you know, as, as you write. But even if you don't, no one reads it. They're reading you and your smile and your understanding and you're reading them with new eyes. And so yeah, that process of cre the creative process is ultimately, um, uh, what did I say once? I think um, creativity is the bird song of our species. I think it is mm. the most beautiful thing about us. And we should all be a little creative sometimes, but... Gosh, why would we ever want to all profit off of it? Doesn't seem like that's necessary. Yeah. I mean, it's nice when somebody does, but oh, it also absolutely. complicates the heck yeah. out of it too. No, it's absolutely beautiful when someone does and they can make it. I just don't think it validates it more. It's just right. a nice outcome, but it certainly doesn't make the word more work more valid. Right. Yeah. I took a memoir writing class once. Um, I did not realize how painful that would be. Just in terms, not painful, but just how heavy it would be. Um, I was thinking I might write a book that has, you know, the chapter about a specific instance and then a recipe at the end just because it's fun and it's light and it felt formulaic enough that I could maybe, it was approachable. But I ended up, you know, there are certain things that want to be birthed. Yeah. And I started writing several chapters just about my, um, I, I, I started going to church. Um, I no longer go to church, but when I was a child, there was a woman who was probably in her 80s who would drive around the neighborhood with a in her station wagon and pick children up to go to Sunday school. Hmm. And my parents let me go. And um, the church, it, I grew up in Napomo, this little Presbyterian church. And uh, the experiences there are, are the memoir writing teacher said you know, we live in this wonderful age where you can look something up on Google Earth. If you're having a hard time remembering or mm -hmm. getting the evocative smells and the textures mm -hmm. and all of that, maybe look something up, look an address up. Mm -hmm. And I looked that church up here. It's 30 minutes away, but mm -hmm. I looked it up. And the moment I saw it, it I was flooded with feelings. And, you mm -hmm. know, you just sit there and cry for half an hour mm -hmm. looking at this church on the Internet. But it brought so many things right up to the surface, and suddenly I was able to write. And I've never shared it with the world, but there there is one chapter in particular that is just, I'm so proud of it. There isn't a word that's out of place or excessive or... Um, Good for you. Yeah, and I don't know if I'll ever share it, but it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. The gift was in coming to terms with this thing. Wow. Um, that's, that's wonderful. Well, so I just, I highly recommend oh. his advice to 
mm-hmm. look and address up and yeah. and look at this thing from all angles and mm-hmm. see what it brings up. It's just terrific advice. Um, we haven't talked much about wine really, but, um, you are, like I said, highly accomplished. You write for Jeb Dunnick, you mm-hmm. write for Robert Parker, you have this publication. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm just so proud that you were able to come on here and that we got to talk about something else. Yeah, you know? actually, I thought that was really refreshing. And thank you for opening up, uh, about your experiences with the creative process. And, yeah. Um, I appreciate that very much. Yeah, I, um, you know, I think probably for you too, wine is a part of our lives. We're here on the beautiful Central Coast, yeah. but it it isn't. It's it's just one one part of it, isn't it? It's just for one sure. small part. Yeah. Yes. And this, and then the people that we meet through wine are even more important than the wines themselves. I believe. Exactly, and hence this podcast. You know, talking about ourselves. Mm-hmm. Who is the person that births this? You know, wine writing or this product or mm-hmm. um you know i just i think that that is the point is mm-hmm. the people behind it i ask everybody um at the end of an episode if you were going to die tomorrow mm-hmm. and it, you knew you wanted to celebrate your life mm-hmm. what would you eat what would you drink and who would you be with oh that's so lovely it what can ni- be yeah what a nice question <laughs> um you know i think i would keep it quiet uh, I wouldn't really want uh, to burden anyone with that information, uh, except for um, my wife and uh, a couple of close friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would ask everyone to bring BYOB. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I'd I'd um, I wouldn't want to overthink what to drink. I, I think that I'd, all of my thoughts would be about who to invite, and mm-hmm. I'd want to cook them uh, an authentic Azorian Portuguese meal. Yeah. And uh, I'd also want some caviar there for sure, because that's one of my favorite <laughs> foods and probably some uni. Oh, and, nice. um, and that I think would put on some good music mm-hmm. and keep it simple. I, I, because, you know, I, I sort of have this feeling that every, there's some sense, usually uh, I have this sense throughout the day, it might only last for a second, but it could be the last day. So uh, I don't think I'd do anything too different, but maybe so just have a couple of friends around me that I haven't seen for a little while. And maybe crack open one of those bottles you've been collecting. Yeah, I mean, a Sinequinon probably, because sure. I love the older <laughs> Sinequinons. That's I probably would raise a glass to Manfred and Elaine. And I think if I have to say the last wine that would ever enter into my body would probably be made, something made by Manfred and Elaine Crankle, and it would probably be the E-raised Sinequinon. That sounds like a good way to go. Right on. Right on. R.H. Drexel, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Jamie. It's been a pleasure. Listeners, I hope you've learned something, felt something, or been pushed to taste something new during this episode. I'm getting a buzz just thinking about it. If you want to learn more about Consumed or any of my guests, go to letsgetconsumed.com. Very special thanks to my stalwart editor, Chris Lambert, who helps me out when he's not working on his own project the wildly popular true crime podcast, Your Own Backyard, about the disappearance of Cal Poly student Kristen Smart. There's new movement in that story, by the way, so look the podcast up right now. Also, if you like Consumed and think more people should hear it, please review the podcast wherever you like to listen. That always gives me a thrill. Okay, until next time, I'm Jamie Lewis. Jamie Lewis.